You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like toothache, robots and bears. Sam Willis, those are astounding uh, examples. I want to do them all, particularly robots. (laughs) Uh, And I'm amazed we haven't done the history of bears. But we could also do the history of happenstance, the glance and dance, or the prance, enhance... (laughs) The Lance, and even Elegance. (laughs) Uh, We've done the history of rhyming, and that's atrocious, isn't it? But for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of reunions, which was inspired by a recent Daybell trip back to Oxford to my old college for a gaudy, is in fact all about the history of fine dining, pomp and ceremony in 20th century Oxford University. It's about black family reunions after the abolition of slavery in the United States of America. It's about the reunion of loved ones after World War II. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of ketchup, and this is one of my favourite recent episodes, is in fact all about 18th century housewives, cookery and medicine. It's about crime and poisoning, and it's also about Jonathan Swift's poetry. It's about US nationalism, geopolitics and trade wars, including McDonald's pulling out of Russia in 2022. It's also all about spaghetti westerns, and who could forget it? It's about the remarkable Mr Henry J Hines. Who knew indeed, Sam Willis? Yeah, all wonderful stuff, those episodes were. Uh, let me say of my fellow presenter, he is uh, the man without a shadow. The man who won't grow up. He is the Peter Pan of the past. 
He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Sam. Hello. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were an old age-related historian, he'd only be fortified with the elixir of everlasting life. So wise and sage-like is his mastery of anything historical that you'd think he were in his anecdotage rather than being the young slip of a historian that he is simply titanic. Some would say grandfatherly is his care and concern for our honoured discipline. Yes, you've guessed it, is the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, everyone. Hello. It's been a it's been a while since we've recorded for, for many reasons, but uh, primarily I've not been very well, and um, and I'm feeling quite old. And uh, James, you've reached a, a bit of a milestone in your life, and you suggested we did old age, so I think that's I why did. we're here today. I did. I turn fifty uh, in December. And although that isn't old, I, I'm certainly feeling feeling slightly older uh, than I was. No, but this really comes around because I've been involved rather tangentially in a brilliant project uh, at Millbrook Care Home, which is in Exeter. Uh, and I've been working with uh, the lovely pupils at Exeter School on an intergenerational project all about memory. Um, this was something that we started off during lockdown. We created an intergenerational project so that children who were at home homeschooling without the access to history teachers could learn to be real life historians studying oral history. And that would then also connect them with somebody in an elderly generation, perhaps a grandparent, and that they could interview each other about their lives. And that's exactly what we're doing at Millbrook, uh, which is a terrific uh, project. I went the other week to give them a chat about oral history and I used the chapter that we had in our World War Two book on deafness. Do you remember that, Sam? Uh, yes, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't talk about it off the top of my head. Though. No, I, I could talk about it. I could talk about it off the top of my head because I read the chapter very recently and there was a wonderful example. Oh, good, good. After Hiroshima, um, of a a young girl who was discovered many, 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 many years later as part of a, a medical project, uh, basically looking after people who had been uh, affected by the bomb being detonated. And what we recover after this is the life story of a young girl who was um, who was who's deaf deaf mute and she were walked outside of her house um discovered that the bomb was dropping uh her parents her brothers and sisters all died she ran up into the mountains was teased by the, the people that she met because she was deaf mute and only decades later as she got involved in this project did she go back to the house that she lived in and she um then took the the people who were with her on a tour around the city and she they knocked on somebody's door and for the first time she actually spoke and said something uh in japanese uh, and had rediscovered many decades later her grandmother uh i i told this anecdote to the people at, at millbrook and it absolutely stunned them uh, it's, a, it's such an extraordinary example, and it made me think that we should do the history of deafness as well. Um, mm. But it, but it, it really got me thinking about the history of of old age, not only as uh, those kind of important memories um, that are 
reside within uh, people of a sort of senior generation, but also to think about how we reconstruct a history of old age. This is something I've been interested in for uh, for many, many years. Uh, and we can think about how we, we define it as a category. We can think about the way in which it has changed over time. What are those big sort of changes um, that really sort of alter the experience of old age? And what are those continuities um, of old age. So I was I was thinking along those sort of lines. Where were you going with old age, Sam? Well, and I started thinking about it. Maybe realised that as a as a stage of life, it it encompasses so much variety, doesn't mm. it? So you've got people maybe from their fifties onwards um, to people who are past a hundred. So it does take up a, a, a potentially a massive section of of a human life. You've got people who are immensely wealthy who've brought up and created wealth over an entire lifetime we've also got people who have um the 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 least money i mean um absolute poverty as well so huge ranges there also there's the same principle with physical fitness and frailty as well i thought was interesting when you're thinking about people from 50 um onwards um and this variety i think makes it, it particularly uh, valuable and rich for historians to look at, whether you're looking at kind of specific individual histories of people or overarching narratives, big stories, small stories, whatever it might be. And I mean, I think I, I really enjoyed thinking about this and it made me realise just how many different ways you can get into it. Um, the first kind of point I wanted to make was um, you can't assume that people actually did grow old. So we're in a we're in a uh, we live in a world now where um, we are blessed in that we've got medical science, and people caring for us, and um, extra education and health and all these things that help us um, help us survive into uh, older age. But that wasn't necessarily the case, and of course it varied over time. And there are also a number of pitfalls that you've got to be careful of when you look at figures which concern life expectancy. So this is all to do with the question of whether, well, what old age actually was and how many people were old. So um, in England, it's been calculated that life expectancy at birth is around 35. And this is from the 1540s to 1800, where there have been some decent amount of work. And it's fair to assume it wouldn't have been any higher before the 1540s. Um, but that figure of 35 is quite interesting, actually, because um, because of the high rate of infant mortality at the time, well, any time before the mid-19th century, that it drastically pulls down the average age. Uh, and in fact... What you're looking at is that those who survived the first hazardous years of life um, do have a decent chance of actually reaching what then was considered to be old age. You know, now it's, I suppose it would be middle age or even longer. So I just wanted to make the point that assuming you know what old age is doesn't necessarily work when you apply it to all periods of the past. And the moment you start dealing with um uh, statistics particularly to do with survival rates in the past things get a little bit murky so by no means assume that everyone was old in the past but 
Um, nor, nor was it the opposite. No. <laughs> so they definitely, they definitely were old. Yeah, people. yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the one of the misconceptions that historians have had is that you know there were very few uh, elderly people surviving. And I think I think some of the sort of big studies recently, and I'm thinking here of Pat Thane's work on the long history of old age that I'll talk about in a little bit. It really sort of you know makes the point that there were significant numbers of elderly people but also this misconception that um that old age was the same for everyone and i think there are masses of sort of different differences different ways that people experienced it not only over time but dependent on class and wealth and gender and region family circumstances personal health personality and also the somebody's attitudes and opportunities that they have you know are really related to the historical moment that they're they're actually living in and i think so i think one of the important things to think about when you're thinking about old age is that the category of old age is is actually quite difficult to define and there's some degree of debate about it you know in in earlier periods they may say that it you know it it is from about 50 even 40 um that if we think about the early modern period um in the late 17th century you're looking at almost a third of the population were 40 or over 10% of people were over 60. And I think one of the things that's really important as historians is not to impose our current understandings of old age onto the past, but to to view it in its in its own terms. I think what you what you have now is you have now, um, you know, it's very common for couples to experience a period in their lives when children have left home, they enjoy higher earning power. Um, this didn't happen in the in the early modern period or rarely happened in the early modern period due to, to late marriage and low life expectancy, as you're talking about. And also, if you look at it from a, an economic point of view, throughout the early modern period, many families found it it necessary to break up the estate for the next generation in order to provide for them so we see among the landed classes the dissolution of estates uh, that tended to begin around mid to late 40s which basically structurally means that the the parents generation were increasingly dependent on others and unable to supply their own needs and you know and this is this in some ways can define old age others yeah, define it in terms of the capacity to work, so diminished physical powers, particularly of working men. Um, what this means then is that is that you tend to find that many elderly couples, rather than having this time by themselves, in fact have children living with them. So girls often remained looking after older parents, which delayed their own marriages, for example. Um, also if we think about it on a on a personal level um old age was often associated with reduced social status loss of authority that went with loss of property and reduced earning power but uh, as we've argued there is a diversity of individual experience at the lower end of the social scale um old age could also be an even greater problem uh, and poor relief basically put them as a responsibility of their children but in reality, the community looks after them. So there's there's a, a lower end without before the rise of pensions. There's a real sort of a real problem. And also, I think the fourthly, we're looking at the 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 as you as people grow older, 
the likelihood of infirmity, increased disabilities, illness, those kinds of things. So that's a, you know, that's a, a, a real problem. And life for those on the fringes of society could be absolutely desperate. And um, there's a re some really good studies that I that I've been reading. Um, the Long History of Old Age, edited by Pat Thane. It's quite an old book now, but it came out in 2005, and it's a wonderful sort of sweeping history of old age that really it's it's really based in the west so it doesn't go into uh it doesn't go into into africa or or, or asia um it touches on north america for later periods um but it's really looking at at europe um from the ancient world through to the 20th century and one of the big things is this argument that basically there are a great range of experiences of old age across any given culture. But coming out of the book are four four really clear um, changes that we see over that time, um, many of them related to industrialization, modernism from the uh, 18th century onwards, and maybe four uh, big continuities. So if we think about the the sort of big changes... Uh, that come about. The first is the introduction of pensions, uh, and this is a relatively modern phenomenon. Uh, it starts among civil servants in the 18th century. Later into the early 20th century, we have national pension plans, and basically what this means is that rather than people being, you know, having to rely on on children and their earning power going down, there is actually money that is let that is put aside for them uh, in their old age to look after them and this this is absolutely groundbreaking in terms of the lives that they could that they could live uh, particularly for those who were who were poor um, rather than those with investments and 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 property uh, and income coming in that way the other big change the second big change that we see is the way in which uh really nasty stereotypes in art and literature and I'll talk about some of this uh, later on um, these appear to be decline um, in the modern period um, and we move away from the sort of symbolic representations of old age and in the medieval and early modern period uh, and the elderly are seen much more sympathetically much more individualistically from uh, the 19th century onwards the third big change is around medicine and it's related to um, the demise of humoral conceptions of the the body in old age the physiology the idea that as you grow older you become colder and drier and what we have is a sort of rise of the medicalization of old age and i suppose the development of geriatric medicine so the, that kind of medicine that actually um you know deals with people who are at the ends of their of their lives and and sort of really sort of intervenes in a meaningful way to make their lives better and also i think i think um there's a there's also um a disconnect in old age history that um that is related to the extension of lifespan in the 20th century so in the 20th century we see life expectancy increasing and people actually living a much longer healthier uh, old age and certainly you know the post-war um, post-second world war you know generation um, had a very different experience of a fairly well healed 
um, or for those who are, are in the sort of middle classes, a fairly well-heeled uh, and prosperous um, uh, old age, uh, in contrast to people earlier. If we're looking at um, if we're looking at continuities, if we move on to that, I think there are some real sort of continuities that stand out. So, irrespective of age, um, th- I think one of the things that you note uh, from classical through classical Greece through to twentieth century uh, Europe or, or America is the way in which elderly people value independence. Uh, and try to work in their later years in order to retain some degree of of autonomy. There's also, secondly, been uh, a sort of sense of reciprocal obligations within the family to care for the elderly. Um, So social responsibilities, there's, there's always been that tendency. But there are also intergenerational tensions that have been constant throughout this period. I think one of the other tendencies that we see is that the elderly are vulnerable to isolation or being separate uh, from people. And this actually, would you believe, Sam Willis, is something that I am exploring in a new six-year research project that literally today, what are we, the 7th of uh, November uh, 2022, the Swedish Research Council has just Uh, awarded me an extraordinary amount of money, uh, something like £1.8 million over a six-year period, to work with some brilliant colleagues, Sue Broomhall in Australia, um, at Catholic University in Australia, uh, Svante Norhem at Lund, and Lisa Hellman at Lund. Uh, We're going to be working on a new project called Moved Apart, Communicated Experiences of Separation in the 16th and 17th centuries. Very exciting project. And this idea of of elderly and ageing and separation, I think, is one that is really, really pertinent to that six-year project. So I'm really looking forward to doing lots of exciting research on that and reporting it on a regular basis in this podcast, Sam. So there we are. That, that's a sort of a long sort of like, sort of historiographical sort of ramble through through this. Good. I mean, I want to pick up on one of the key questions, um, which I, I mentioned at the beginning, which is when does old age begin? And that itself has a history, which is which is fascinating. So if you think about the sort of stages of human development when you're young there are some very clean and clear ones and medically it's the first and the second dentition it's when you get your teeth when you get your baby teeth when you get your adult teeth those are kind of clear moments that happen to people and then there's the uh, onset of puberty as well um, but it's just not the same at the other end of the spectrum and if you look about the history of the study of old age it's quite interesting how people went about it so initially everyone just sort of assumed that they would take the government advice on this. So they based old age on what um, the government believed it to be according to government regulations of pension age or retirement age. Um, So men over 65 and women over 60. This was an established way of doing it. It was a setup of when you got your pensions. And this ran through any academic or, or any kind of study of old age. But then if you actually look back in the past, you get a much more interesting, much more flexible ways of looking at it. And it does raise the the point about assuming that the government or the state has has made an, a, like a, a, a sensible decision here, has made an adequate study of age, the, 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 the moment where old age begins. I mean, essentially, everyone has just assumed that the government has made a sensible study of it and that they've been 
right. And of course, it may not necessarily be as uh, as easy as that. If you look at this in the past, there are lots of different examples of different institutions, different people, different uh, different places, different races, different cultures taking old age to begin at uh, at different stages. Um, and I thought this was uh, really, really uh, thought-provoking and interesting. So if you take it, the Elizabethan Poor Law, um, this requires parish authorities to provide for the aged and impotent poor, but they don't set any specific age at which a person was automatically considered to be aged, aged. So like most people before the 19th century, the poor law architects and administrators actually considered uh, old age more of a question of function or, or lack of it rather than one of precise calendar years, which is the system that I think we've got landed with. So the aged were those who were were infirm, they were frail, they were suffering various incapacities of body or mind to the extent that they're no longer fully able to take care or support themselves, but also those who gave the appearance of being old. So the assumption here is that people could be ageing, they could be advancing in years, um, or that they could be incapable of supporting themselves. But it was only when the two conditions came together in one person that they were actually considered old by authorities. And there are lots of other kind of subtle nuances in this, which I thought was interesting as well. So it was the custom of workhouses in the 19th century to allow aged um, workers a few luxuries. And the age at which these luxuries were permitted does give you a strong suggestion of local definitions of age. So in um, in North Wales, as an example here, where you have a distinction made between uh, the treatment of the impotent and the able-bodied, um, and those over 50 uh, are allowed a little tobacco or snuff, and women over 70... Um, and are allowed a little bit of tea and sugar and butter added to their diets. There's a similar setup in the Chester workhouse as well, with people over 50 being allowed a few extra luxuries, and even the really old people being allowed a little bit of gin as well as some ale. Um, and there are other there are friendly societies. Uh, these are sort of mutual organisations who get together to help people. It's what happened before the welfare state. And they tended to uh, consider anyone over the age of 50. So, James, you'd fit into this now. Oh, I'm not, quite, being, I'm not quite there yet. Not quite. Soon. Soon, <laughs> soon. it's coming up. Yes. As um, being someone who could be um, worthy of help. So I just wanted to make the point here that there are some really fascinating examples of the way that age and old age differs um oh and of course i, I hadn't mentioned this but um, it, it it was also determined by what um what, what activities you were involved in um so minors in particularly uh, it was widely accepted they couldn't work past the age of 60 and actually people earned their best wages between 25 and 45 and by 55 everything tends to go down there are other examples of trades puddlers in particular these guys involved in um rather nasty business of of, of iron making um they generally couldn't work past 55 dock laborers as well past the age of 50 so it kind of depended what you did it depended where you were um, and it depended who was doing the judging according to whether you were considered old aged and or not and of course i think the key point here is that all of these people living in the past i think they had a, a very clear idea in their own minds
Britons when they suddenly woke up one morning and they found their knees weren't working properly and their mind was wandering a bit and they 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 had reached a, an autumn of their years. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, excellent, Sam. My daughters uh, uh, amuse themselves as we go drive down the street and there's an, uh, a care home very near us, which helpfully advertises that um, people over the age of 53 are allowed to move <laughs> in. And they tease me that in a couple of years uh, I will be eligible for for that. Uh, it's a delightful yes. place, but um, it makes me feel <laughs> makes me feel my age. It certainly does. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to talk about something completely uh, disconnected from that. Um, it's been a while since I have regaled you all with tales of gloves, and I am going to deliver the book finally this Christmas. Sue Broomall mm. and I have been busily uh, beavering away. And one of the reasons I came up with this topic, uh, old age, was because I'd been writing a section called Gendering the Muff, would you believe? So muffs are handwear that you would wear uh, outside when it was cold. So in the, I suppose, the sort of mid to late 17th century and into the 18th century. So imagine these. They are cylinders of fabric, either of fur or fabric. They're open both ends for women to insert their hands into. They appear in the 16th century and gain popularity into the 17th and 18th century, made of all sorts of things, satin, silk, velvet. Um, and one of the really interesting things about them is that they, they often have really elaborate embroidered design on them so you can interpret, interpret that visually. You can look at the kinds of skills that people had uh, in 
in producing these, so the kind of women that were involved in the fabrication of these, but also really interesting motifs that can be that can be uh, examined but that's not what i want to that's not what i want to talk about uh, interesting though that is uh, should you be interested in that the gendering of the muff uh, you should wait for the book uh, to come out um, what i'm interested in is the way in which the depiction of particular women either young women being displayed with extravagantly lar wearing extravagantly large muffs um, or elderly women and so it relate it returns me to the point that i made earlier about in the sort of pre the 19th century there were some really vicious um uh, caricatures of the elderly and here we have elderly men and women um sort of parodied for wearing outlandish uh, garments and in particular uh, the muff and i'm going to talk about two images here um, Google up, if you will, uh, William Hogarth's 1746 etching, A Taste of the High Life. This is an extraordinary uh, etching. Uh, Google it up, Sam Willis, and, and have a look at that. The whole scene lampoons the clothing and lifestyle of polite society, which are depicted in various paintings hanging on the walls. Um, we've also got a clothed monkey in the foreground who is reading from a dinner menu that including such delights as coxcombs, ducks' tongues, rabbits' ears, and a fricassee of snails. Now, key for <laughs> what I'm going to be talking about are two figures on the right of the print of the print there's a woman dressed in a ludicrously full skirt and her pigtailed elderly male companion who has his left arm um over an farcically enormous white fur muff and the pair seem to be overjoyed with examining a matching teacup and saucer by which hogarth is ridiculing the perceived passion among the wealthy to collect porcelain in the mid 18th century here Handwear choices, I would argue, thus acted as a distinctive marker, would you believe, of early modern normative masculinities and their and their subversion. So basically, this elderly man who is wearing a muff, an outlandish white muff, is being ridiculed for his be effeminate behaviour, but also the ludicrous fashions uh, brought on by opulent uh, consumption. So basically, it is a way here of of parodying or critiquing or teasing um, the the sort of polite classes. Now, something that is even more uh, searing is a is a another etching, um, which is if you Google this up, Piercy Roberts comfort for an old maid. This is basically a little colour um, uh, etching. Uh, that depicts a woman, an elderly woman, um, who is dressed in a in a in an overtly sexual manner um, here in this coloured print, um, and she's addressing her footman, and she's dressed in ostentatious finery, heavy makeup, and she sits on the right of the image with a again, it's an oversized hand muff, so she's wearing this sort of just bizarre. Uh, handwear um which is supposed to sort of talk about her you know her 
you know, being dressed up in in all her finery, trying to be sexually alluring to men. Um, And she asks the footman, um, uh, John, uh, how do you like my fashionable muff and tippet? Don't you think I look charmingly today? To which the servant, who we are told is a Yorkshireman, curtly replies, and I won't try a Yorkshire accent, even though I lived in Yorkshire, uh, till the age of 11 and had a really broad Ibagum pet uh, accent. Um, he replies, why, madam, I'm but a servant, and servitude, they say, is no inheritance. But as a Yorkshire man, I like to speak my mind. Then I do think you look for all the world like a hog in armour, and I think it a shame an old woman like you should be running after the men at your time of night. You had better think of summer else, for you look nice and sickly, that's for certain. So this is a really, really offensive rebuke behind this sort of caricatured Yorkshire bluntness, but is also a way of using the 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 image of the muff, this extraordinary sort of handwear that she's wearing, as a way of attacking her in a really misogynistic way uh, as an old woman. So there we are, Sam. Uh, the hist- the gendered history of the muff uh, intersecting with old age. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff indeed, and it certainly raised various other issues that I would like to explore had I got more time, uh, and I'm particularly interested in the way that uh, maritime transport affected old age um, in terms of old age in different colonies. So if you've got a greater number of men travelling, say, to America than women, and um, maybe a greater life expectancy of women rather than men in certain locations, is that you end up... um, in different locations with uh, completely different numbers of people who are growing old. So um, the whole makeup of society changes as people get older. And I thought that was interesting. I wondered how it would affect people's lives. And certainly um, you you do get a sense of people of the same gender um, forming closer relationships in old age if there are, say, more men around um, and living together for um, for ease, companyship, uh, company and partnership uh, in older age, old age. And I thought that was fascinating. I'd like to find out more about that. Anyway, that's enough for old age. We'll come back with... Um, we're doing the history of murmuring next, which has been on the back burner for a while. I'm hugely looking forward to doing the history of murmuring. Um, for now, though, do please follow us on social media. Keep in touch with what we're doing. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the history of the sea, please do listen to my podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, check me out on at James Daybell uh, on Twitter. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So come and make friends with us there. We have a lovely website uh, coming up to Christmas. It's full of all sorts of delights that you can buy. Uh, Signed books, uh, copies of our series books on the Romans, the Vikings, the Tudors and World War II. And of course, our big hardback book and also our big book, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History, is now out in paperback and looks extraordinary in a sort of very, very vivid yellow colour. A perfect present for everyone. Uh, And if you'd like to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past, head over to patreon.com and click on the Histories of the Unexpected 
page there and anything that you can do to help support what we're doing would be very much appreciated and we promise to bring you some Christmas episodes as well and for those of you interested in the history of mumbling as a little foretaste uh, check out the history of mumble rap <laughs> I know mumble rap was a good word alright let's do that guys thank you all so much for listening we'll be with you again soon bye 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 guys When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.